1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Ye know that ye were Gentiles, carried away unto these dumb idols, even as ye were led. Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are diversities, differences of administration, but the same Lord. There are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another divers kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. Whereas the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. For if the foot shall say, Because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, Because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the, the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are there many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again of the head to the, foot, the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more, those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow a more abundant honor. And our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and members in particular. And God hath set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, have all the same, have all the gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but covet, covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. You may be seated. God bless you. I'd like to greet you with the words of John the Revelator in chapter 1, where he says, Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come 
and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He is the one who saved us. He is the one who is the Lord of the church. He is the one who humbled himself. He is the one who for our sakes became poor. And he is the one who is made the head over all things and is the head of the church. And he's the savior of the body. Thank you, Dave, for reading that scripture. Uh, We want to think about some of the things that it says here in a bit. Um, We do live next to Jake Diener's cabin. Uh, One of the stories that uh, I like to tell is how my wife met one of her relatives. And um, somebody she doesn't see very often, this this lady was telling my wife that they're going to go to the mountains. And, well, my wife wondered where they're going. They're going up to um, Jake Diener's cabin. Oh, well, that's interesting that we live right next to there. And uh, my wife's, uh, I think it was her cousin or somebody, said, no, no, you, you don't have the right place in mind. We're going to the mountains. <laughs> well, the fact of the matter is we do live right next to Jake Diener's cabin, right at the base of Shane Mountain, and that's a good place to live. But it's also good to be here this morning with you. I invite your attention for a um, beginning passage to Ephesians chapter 1. This passage that I want to read is Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus. starting in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him in his own right hand in the heavenly places, Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, and not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And I'd like you to look at verse 23. The church being the body of Christ and the church fills as I would understand, the church fills the one who is himself, the fullness. Now, I'm not sure how that you can put your mind around that because I can't quite, but perhaps it's a little bit like the mystery that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 5, where he talks about the relationship between the husband and wife uh, being uh, synonymous or concurrent, perhaps, with the relationship between Christ and the church. See, when God created Adam, he was created in his image, But this image was, I suppose, incomplete or something. And it wasn't until God created Eve to complete and to bring Adam to completion. It was then 
that I believe that the creation of man was in the fullest expression, at least of what we know of today, being in the image of God. And so we have the same kind of thought here as well, where the church, which is the bride of Christ, is the one who completes him. God knew that the church would need some structure and would need some organization to continue to exist and to flourish. And so he gave us some offices and some regulations. He told us how to live and how to walk. And he gave us all these rules to live by. And these are the commands that are given to us in the scripture, specifically in the New Testament. And I think you would agree with me that the church is more than an organization, but you just about can't argue the fact but that it is, to at least some extent, an organization. And so every organization needs some organization. It needs structure and order to function. And so that's why I asked uh, Dave, he wondered what for text would work good for him to read. And I told him to read, I asked him to read 1 Corinthians 12. And there it talks about how that the church is, or how that the body is an illustration of the church. So we have muscles and bones and we have brains and we have heart. And we have feet and ears and eyes and we even have, what's the, what's the name of that bone or ligament or something in John Ulab's knee that needs fixed? We have a meniscus. Like, I don't even know what that is. But we have all these things, and apparently if the meniscus isn't any good or has problems, why we need to fix it. And Paul writes, he doesn't use this terminology, but I'm just using this, that Paul writes how it's funny, how we esteem the parts of the body. We esteem the parts of the body that are less important. And the feeble members, and I suppose he's probably talking to the heart or the lungs because they're kind of protected inside your rib cage. Or maybe he's talking about your brain because it's protected inside your skull. And they're among the most important. And the big strong ones like your arms and your legs. And that's the ones that we exalt in when we think of our strength and our speed and our stamina. Those parts of your body can actually be amputated and you can still live on. So there's something counterintuitive about this thing. And that is that the ones that we think of as being indispensable are actually not of vital importance. And so God, I believe the lesson here in 1 Corinthians 12 is that he wants us to work together. Feeble or strong, beautiful or ugly, honorable or dishonorable, all of these members together for the good of the body. And he wants us to be a part of the body. I think that's something else that's um, illustrated here so well in 1 Corinthians 12. An organ or a limb that is outside or detached from the body is grotesque. I think you'd probably agree with me that the eyes are probably one of the most beautiful parts of your body. But I think you'd also agree with me that an eye outside of its socket is horrifying. And so we need to function together and we need to function in our place. But the crux of the matter, and that is the, the essence of the structure and the offices and the leadership in, in relation to the body, is for the health and the continuity of the church so that the church can, can continue in its mission. That is the crux of the matter. 
of all the ways that the church's mission can be described. It is essentially to continue the work that Jesus came into the world to do. And I suppose there are many scriptures that could be cited here. And I just have two. And the first is in Matthew 28, what we often call the Great Commission. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things. Whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always. So what the Great Commission is about is that the church goes and continues the work that Jesus initiated. So that's the one scripture that I'd like you to think about. And the other is um, what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5 as the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now, then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. So he has given us this ministry of reconciliation. This is the ministry that Jesus came to start or to initiate. He came to bring peace. But there's also something that we should think about here. And that is that Jesus did not came to bring peace with the world. He says, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. So there is a sword that enforces the division between those that are at peace with God and have been reconciled to him. And on the other hand, those who are at enmity with God and are at odds with him. And so the ministry of reconciliation is to rescue individuals from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his son. That is how that is reconciled. Not that the two kingdoms will be reconciled. That will be enforced by a sword. Jesus says. And so, he calls us to minister as he ministered. He calls us to keep on doing the things that he came to do. He calls us to serve as he served. He calls us to continue the work that he began. And I suggest to you from 1 Corinthians 12, this work is best done as a body working together. I'd like to give you a few thoughts on the differences of function within the church, just as there's differences in function in your body. The heart pumps the blood, the the lungs put the oxygen into it, and so on. The, The legs and the arms and the muscles and the brain consume all that oxygen, and so on. And so let's think a little bit about the pastor's responsibility. And it is the pastor's charge to feed, to govern, to oversee, and to protect, and to provide. Acts chapter 20, take heed, verse 28, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. So there is an 
an idea here of overseeing and of feeding. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Again, we have analogy, an analogy of the body and talks about some of these different aspects and offices in the church. Ephesians 4, verses 11, I want to read down to verse 16. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of Man, of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we be henceforth no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. And so the point here is, is that the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and teachers are supposed to supply and equip the body so that every part of it is matured and developed until it reaches perfection. Now, I want you to think about this a little bit. And that is, which one of these, which one of these um, parts of the body... I'm, I'm speaking the, the natural physical body or the ones who sustain and supply the rest of them. And that is the, what I proposed are the uncommonly parts, the parts that you don't even want to see. They are the ones who are inside your body sustaining the, the rest of your body. And I, I propose that that's a good illustration for, for us as pastors. And, and this, is, this is what we're, we're learning out of this, this passage here, is that the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, they are not the ones who are the, the beautiful part of the body. They're not the, necessarily the ones that you want to be looking at. They are the ones who are um, equipping the saints for the work of the church. Until every part of it is matured and developed and reaches perfection. So that's the pastors. Now how about the rest of the body? And I, well, I don't know what you call the rest of the body. So we, I was talking about the pastors here. I'm, I'm curious what you call the rest of the body. And, and a lot of people call that the laity. And personally, I don't like that term because it speaks, the, the laity, when we think of it in that way, the context has to take part, has, has to uh, take in consideration the counterpart of the laity, which is the priesthood. And we don't think of church that way. In fact, the, the, the scripture that I cited at the beginning talks about that he has made us all kings and priests. And so don't think, please, don't think of your pastors as the priests and the rest of you as the laity. That is not the biblical picture. And so a biblical term that I think we should use, and this is safe, I hope, because it's a biblical term, and that is the flock. Pastors, 
depict shepherds. And the flock depicts the rest of the body. So I hope that's scriptural. I hope that's accurate. Now turn to Hebrews chapter 13. There's two verses here, verses 7 and 17. And I don't really like to just pull out two verses, but I guess I will anyway, just for the sake of the point here. Hebrews 13, verse 7, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. And then verse 17 Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give an account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Now, I'm not a um, German-speaking person. I can speak Pennsylvania Dutch, but I think there's a pretty big difference here. But the idea here in verse 17, from what I understand, from what I have been taught, um, that the German says is that where it says obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. The German gives the idea of that you're supposed to listen to your teachers and follow them. Now I want you to think about listening just a little bit. There's two ways that you can listen. You can listen in a passive sense where you sit back and you just hear something. And that's good if it doesn't just go in ear, one, one ear and out, and out the other. So, so listening, that way is the first part of, of real listening. But real genuine listening is when what you hear and what you perceive actually has a motivating factor and changes your life. That is real listening. Did you ever tell your children to listen and expect them to do something about what you told them? That's the idea of listening here. So it's listening in the active sense. I want to tell you, I want to tell you this, and that is that if there is something that will put humility and the fear of God in the heart of a God-fearing minister, it's just that, to think that there are those in the church here who look to your ministers for direction in serious matters that have potential eternal implications and to know that God will hold them accountable for, for what they do and what they say in that position is enough to make that God-fearing minister tremble. So pray for them. That's the next thing that I want to talk about. The first is this idea of submission and listening. And the second is to pray for them. Second Thessalonians 3 verse 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us. That the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. And then in verse 18 in the passage here in Hebrews 13. Right following the verse that we looked at. He says... Pray for us 
for we trust we have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. It seems that the writer here of Hebrews had a real clear understanding of the need of prayer as he thought about his responsibility before God. Now, I don't know exactly how you read Revelation chapter 1. And I don't know that it matters much in the point that I want to make here. But in Revelation chapter 1, towards the end of the chapter, we have that beautiful and stunning depiction of Jesus. And I think that depiction of Jesus, it says as he is, he's walking in the churches. And I think that is, as we deal with Jesus, that depiction right there is how we deal with Jesus in the churches today. But in verse 16, John sees that in his right hand are seven stars. And he says later on in the chapter that those seven stars are the angels or they are the messengers to the seven churches. So here are the messengers to the seven churches in the right hand of Jesus. Now I want to say that in Jesus' hands is at once a place of refuge and safety, but it is also a place of vulnerability. John talks about, Jesus in, in John talks about how the, how the, um, his sheep are in his hands. And around those hands are God's hands. And as a person is a sheep, there is that double protection in the hands of Jesus. So the, the hands of Jesus are a place of refuge and a place of safety. But I would also um, ask you to think a little bit about if you have something that you want to dispose of and you have something that you want to crush and you have something that you want to discipline, in your hands is the most vulnerable place that that creature can be. And I want to say that that's just a little bit, perhaps, where the minister finds himself. That place of safety and protection, but also a place of vulnerability. And that is if he does not preach and teach the truth as God calls him to, that he is in the place of the most vulnerable discipline and correction that there is anywhere. And so let me say it again. Pray for them. So we have this idea of listening. We have this idea of praying for them. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, We beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. So there's an order in, and, and a difference in function. It is the pastor's charge to feed and to govern and to oversee and to protect and to provide. And it is the responsibility of the flock to remember them, to listen to them, to pray for them, to know them, to esteem them for what they do, and to be at peace with each other. And I'm sure that both of those lists could be extended uh, a long ways, but that's, that's what I have for you to think about this morning. So, so there is this order and there is this difference in function, but there is still no hierarchy. He has made us all kings and priests. Jesus 
is very clear in his teaching that how all of his followers are brethren. He exposed the hypocrisy of the Pharisees who loved the best seats in the synagogues and they loved the, uh, the, um, the, the best seats in the feasts. And they did things specifically so that they could look good and they liked lofty titles. But this is what Jesus says to them in Matthew 23. But be ye not called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ. And all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon earth, for one is your father, which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. And he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. And another passage in Luke 22, verse 25 and following. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they, they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But it shall not be so among you, but he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. Now, the title of minister, as we often use it, is quite appropriate. But perhaps we don't think of it in its truest sense. And that is, to minister means to attend to the needs of someone. And so a minister in the church attends to the needs that are there. And this is a striking thing. Here is a group of people who have been called out of darkness and, and are in walking in the marvelous light. Their feet have been taken out of the miry clay and they're set on the rock. And they have, the, they have experienced a new birth and they have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. But yet, there are needs there. And that is simply because that while we are in the flesh, we will not ever come to the place where we, we do not need to grow where we do not need to be rebuked and where we do not need to be encouraged. And so the minister attends to the needs that are in the flock. He feeds the flock. He serves as he preaches the word. He ministers as he looks out for danger as a watchman on the wall. He serves as he reproves and rebukes and exhorts with all longsuffering and doctrine. Think of it this way. In a family setting, who or what is it all about? Is it about the parents or the children? And maybe that's not a real good question or not posed in the best way. But I want you to think about it, that in a family setting, it's about the children, really. And perhaps it's better thought of that it's for the sake of the continuation of the human family. Now, in a church setting, what is it all about? 2 Corinthians 12, verse 14. Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. So there is an analogy that Paul makes between how a family is functioning and how the church is supposed to function. And so I told you that in a family, it is actually mostly, I don't know if that's a good way to say it, it's about the children and developing and nourishing your children. That's what it's about. 
And in a church setting, what is it all about? And again here, it is to nourish and to um, bring up and to teach those who are coming. It is not so much for one or the other perhaps, and for sure not the one above the other, and for sure not about the preachers. It's for the health and the continuity of the church. That is the reason that we have this structure. For the health and the continuity of the church. And I'd like you to think about some practical things here about how that uh, God has planned for leadership in the church. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul writes how that God ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. That's what he says. And he uses the example of how God prescribed in the law how that an ox wasn't supposed to be muzzled. And he asks the question, did God actually care so much for the oxen or was he actually trying to say something else? And then verse 10, for our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. So this law that was given about not muzzling the ox was actually given for us, is what Paul is saying. And so, God has ordained that they which preach the gospel, should live of the gospel. Now, I want to read. That's in verse 14. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. And it seems there's a lot of people stop there, and I don't want you to. I want you to, to, to follow with me here now in verses 15 and following. But I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things that it should be done so unto me. For it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying void. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me, what is my reward then? Verily that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant of all, that I might gain the more. And I think I'll stop reading there. I think what Paul is saying here in verses 15 to 19, there's a couple things. He doesn't mention it here, but he talks, he talks in one place about that people have the tendency to heap themselves, to heap to themselves teachers because they have itching ears. All right? I'm going to propose to you 
that unsalaried ministers are a safety against you having your ears tickled. What it does, it provides the minister the freedom to preach the truth without the fear of being fired, if you want to put it that way. See, if you are paid for your labor, no matter who you're working for, you're responsible to do, to the, to do for the one who is paying you what he wants you to. But there is a certain leverage that is given to the one who does something for free. And that is what Paul is saying here. He says, I would rather die. And I'm, I'm making, I'm using my own words here, and I think I'm, I think I'm accurate, and I will, I will subject myself to, to, your, to you as brothers here, but I think I'm accurate here in that that's what this is talking about, that if you do not pay your ministers, if you do not salary your ministers, they have a leverage and they have a boast that they can wield and that they can use an exercise that they do not have if you pay them. So don't take this privilege from him. Don't bind his freedom to preach the truth with the offer of paying for it. Men of Simons in language that is so typical of him, we, we, you, you read him and it's, it's so graphic. But he says it this way in reference to what Paul says here in verse 15, that he would rather die than to have any man make his glory void. Men of Simon says that he would rather be hitched between four horses and pulled in four different directions than to have the privilege of the gospel, than to have the privilege of preaching the gospel for nothing to be taken from him. The second thing, the second practical thing, and this was already referred to by Brother Dave, and that is that you're going to call a brother from among. And I think that's biblical. There's biblical precedent for that in Acts chapter 6. In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples and said unto them, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. So the call from among has a historical, or I should say has a biblical precedent. Now I'd like to also give you a historical note here. And that was at the beginning uh, probably the first hundred years or maybe even longer than that of the Anabaptist movement, there was a very real threat to the life of the Swiss and the Dutch Anabaptist leaders. They did not have the luxury of religious freedom that we enjoy. To have an eldership responsibility was to have a target on your back. See, to be rebaptized was to violate civil law, and you're going to subject yourself to civil punishment, and that was bad enough. But to be the one who was doing the rebaptizing was to be subject to a whole lot worse treatment yet. And so the, the historical precedent here is that the church needed to be flexible and ready at a moment's notice to reelect an elder in the case of the capture or the killing of one of their church leaders. It needed willing and qualified men. And really, the only place that they could look was within, was within that small circle of believers who were audacious enough to have been rebaptized. 
They obviously couldn't go to the Catholics or to the reformers who were persecuting them to get an educated minister. And so they had to call from among themselves. And then I have another observation here. And that is when Mennonite schools in the last century or so hired by credentials rather than by conviction, they soon lost their traditional biblicism. When personal needs, such as counseling or giving guidance in our churches, are filled by those with secular credentials rather than those with a vested brotherly concern, or when our ministry offices are filled with those with education and titles from secular universities and from Protestant seminaries, rather than with those who understand and promote our heritage, we will soon lose our biblicism as well. So we have a, we have a biblical and a historical precedent, and I'm going to say we have a historical necessity. But here's the rub. Here, here's, where, here, where, here's where it gets sticky. How can we in our churches and in our Bible schools and so on keep our former tradesmen turned preachers if our young people are comparing what they hear in colleges and universities to what they hear preached on a Sunday morning? The, uni the university and the seminary trained uh, professor I'm sorry, the university professor and the seminary trained preacher will always be, or let's say as a general rule, be smoother and more eloquent because of his training and his constant practice than the self-educated former tradesman who preaches once a month. So that's, that's the dilemma that we find ourselves. So I have a couple things to say to that. And that is, first of all, to the former tradesman preacher. And that is, do your homework. You can learn by yourself. You don't have to be instructed. We have so many resources. You can do your homework. The scriptural mandate is to make foolproof or to fulfill your ministry. Give yourself to reading. Know the scriptures. Know why you teach what you're teaching. And then to the young people who is comparing, to the young person who is comparing the two, I want you to know that credentials can be deceptive. Secular education does not give the speaker the wisdom from above that you need to hear preached on a Sunday morning. Look past the polished presentation. Look past the charisma. Look past the charm. What is said actually matters more than how it's said. The gauge by which you measure content must always be the scripture. Read the prophet Amos, and he says there is a plumb line, and he's going to set that plumb line. He's not going to pass this way again. So there is a plumb line standing yet, and that is the truth of scripture. Emotion and a good presentation are always secondary, and I would say it's a very distant second at that. Now, there was a, a verse in your Sunday school lesson that just connected real well with that, and that is chapter 4, verse 13. 
when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. I propose to you that that is the preacher you want. You don't want someone who is learned and skilled in the things that the world is looking for. You want someone who evidently, by his life and by his character, what you know about him, speaks of him that he has been with Jesus. And I, brethren, this is in 1 Corinthians 2. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of men's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should stand in the wisdom of, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So if what you want of your preachers is a demonstration of the power of God, make sure that he doesn't go by what we naturally think of as being wise. What you really need to feed your soul, according to uh, Paul here in, second, in 1 Corinthians, is a straightforward preaching of the cross. So I'm wondering what you would think of as giving your church leader credibility. And so I hope I dismantled in your mind the need for credentials from a university or a seminary. But maybe a little closer home and maybe a little bit more um, harder to express here, so I'm going to try to be careful. I'm wondering what, what in your mind gives your pastor credibility. Is it his ordination? Certainly there is something to be said for having been chosen by the church for this work. And certainly there is something to be said to having been charged by the church. So he's chosen and he's charged. Paul wrote to Timothy that if someone desires the office of the overseer of the bishop, he desires a good work. And that's not that we should be walking around desiring or wishing that we could all be the bishop. It's simply that this is a good work. When Paul says of his work as the apostle to the Gentiles, he says, I magnify my office. There's a better translation to that, and that is that I honor my ministry. So when we think of it in that way, we get the idea that he takes a humble view of himself as he thinks of his calling. So why do you lend your pastor credibility? I certainly hope that you can because of his ordination and of his charge. But I want you to think a little bit about the example of Jesus that Paul writes about in Philippians 2. He says that we're supposed to have this mindset that Jesus also had, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of his servant. And being found in fashion as of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. 
Wherefore, because of his humility and because of his becoming man, wherefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The reason that God exalted Jesus was not so much because of who he was, but that he humbled himself and became a servant. And we are called to have this same mindset. God vindicated Jesus' servanthood and his death by raising him from the dead. And I want to propose to you that your minister's work in the church is vindicated and it is established by his servanthood and his humility. What lends a pastor credibility is not so much the office, but how he fills it in a posture of service and humility. Now here's something that maybe we don't think about very often as we think of church leadership. I'd like, to have, I'd like to say just a few things about the place of women. Now, the place of women in the church is both a place of equality and a place of subjection. There is neither Jew nor Greek, Paul writes to Galatians. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ. So there is an equality in the church in Christ. But he also, Paul also writes, and this is now in 1 Corinthians, I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. So there is also a difference here. In 1 Timothy 2, uh, Paul gives us a further explanation. He says, let the women learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in transgression. Now, I don't know exactly what you all want to make out of that, but there is a place of equality for, for women in the church, and there is also a place of subjection. But the Dortry Confession, and I don't know how often you think of this, the Dortry Confession actually prescribes an office for the women in the church, and that is that of deaconess. And we don't have this formalized in our church, and I don't know why not, and perhaps we should. Maybe you do, and if you do, good for you, but we don't. But this is what the Dortry Confession says, and that also the honorable aged widows should be chosen and ordained deaconesses, that they with the deacons may visit, comfort, and care for the poor, feeble, sick, sorrowing, and needy, as also the widows and orphans, and, and assist in attending to other wants and necessities of the church to the best of their ability. So that's something for you to think about. Now, Titus, Paul wrote to Titus. He says this, the aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false teachers, I'm sorry, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, 
to love their children, to be, discreet, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands at the word of God, be not blasphemed. I am convinced that there is specific teaching that your young ladies need and young women need that are best taught by older women. Let's just say that it would be improper for men to be teaching ladies about chastity and about discretion. And it would be next to impossible, I'm sure, for your pastors to be teaching them how to be keepers at home. Now, there is a level where this happens at home, mothers and daughters, and I think that's how it should be. And there is also an opportunity to do some of this in a more formal setting, such as segregated sessions in Bible schools and youth meetings and so on. And I wholeheartedly endorse that. But maybe there is also an opportunity to minister and to establish something as deaconesses. We in our church have never formalized it, but the confession of faith prescribes it. And there's certainly room for it in the scriptures here in Titus. A few closing verses. Hebrews, I'm sorry, Ephesians 4, 13 to 16. Till we all come in the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, unto the effectual, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. The point here is, is that the whole body all comes to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, and it comes to perfection and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now that is an amazing task, to bring this church, all of you together, to the measure, to measure up to the stature or the height of the fullness of Christ. Christ in his fullness. That is your goal. Christian maturity is your goal. And so, thinking of that goal, God has set these offices in place. And now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. And this is in 1 Corinthians 12. That was verse 18. Verse 24, God hath tempered the body together. And verse 28, and God hath set some in the church, first apostles and so on. You are here for a reason, and God placed you here after his pleasure. What is that reason? I don't know the details, and maybe you don't either, but you can be sure that it was God's idea you are here for a reason. I don't know the details, but I can tell you the big picture. I can tell you the big story, and that is that it was for the growth and the furtherance of the kingdom of God.